You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Habercroft. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee, and joining me in Southampton, England, is our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, did you know that the voice at uh, the top of our show, that is Alex Friedman, the voice of the Oklahoma City Dodgers, did you know that he is a curler? I did not. Is it is this because he recorded the podcast for us or No, I was reminded by Time Hop of Alex and I's league championship in the Oklahoma Curling Club. Uh we we won league the the year that he was he was actually able to do one of our leagues between Oklahoma City Dodgers seasons and uh yeah, we yeah, we took home a league title together. You won a lot of league titles in uh, Oklahoma. I I did. That's why I kind of forgot about this story <laughs> and uh, forgot to mention the fact that Alex is a curler. He's he's done our uh, he's had our um, he's had our intro uh, in his voice uh, here for a while now. And yeah, I forgot to bring this story up until Time Hop reminded me that that we were victorious. Well, which one was this? Was I still there or was this... Uh, no, you were long gone. Departed? Long yeah, gone. you were long gone. Uh, yep. Yeah. Yep. So it's finally, we've run out of things to talk about that now we're covering like deep dives in the history of the Oklahoma Curling Club leagues. Well, I mean, this is the first time... It's finally happened. <laughs> this is the first time that we've done an episode where it's just us talking uh, since May 26, which was 14 episodes ago. That I I I gotta say, uh, that's actually kind of impressive. That since there's been no curling since March to speak of, like no proper curling, let's put it that way, since March, um, and it's just all been when is curling gonna <laughs> happen again? <laughs> the answer is always I don't know, probably never. Um, that's pretty <laughs> impressive. Fourteen episodes is pretty good uh, content out of nothing. I gotta say. Uh, I'm impressed that we found 14 different people willing to willing to do a show with us. <laughs> that's that's impressive too. <laughs> but it's finally happened that we've hit rock bottom, so to speak. Uh, yeah, at least for at least for now, we've got some stuff cooking. I hope. Hopefully, we we do have a few plans. But we also realized we hadn't put an episode out in a while, so we figured we should just the two of us, man. Just yeah. The, just have a little chat. And we have we have no shortage of things to talk about, starting with where you are uh, in, in England, where curling is uh, curling is over. Curling <laughs> lasted for three days in England. So and I, I didn't get to curl. So I, I don't think I've I told the show yet my uh, my adventures with lockdown this autumn. I don't think I, I've told you, right? But I don't think I've told the show, our fans, right? So I, went, mean, I had to go to Canada to to help uh, my mom out because she needed mm-hmm. surgery after lockdown ended. So to fly to Canada, quarantine for two weeks. The day I got out of quarantine in Montreal, um, the 
the city went into code red or zone the red zone, which is not quite full lockdown, but pretty close. And you're allowed, you weren't allowed to see anybody. So I couldn't see any friends from growing up or anything. Flew back, had to quarantine for 14 days. And then uh, the day that quarantine ended here, England went back into full lockdown. So I've basically been either in quarantine or pretty high lockdown since the middle of September. Not, and I think now everyone's pretty much in that boat, but uh, it seemed to be kind of perfectly lined up there, my, my lockdown experiences. And Fenton's opened um, on the Monday, and I was planning to go to the rink that Saturday for a competition. And uh, on the, like basically the night before Fenton's opened, the, the government announced they were going to close on the Wednesday. So Fenton's ran a three-day season. They put the ice in. The rink owner figured it was just too risky to keep open like running the ice for a month and then not being certain. So he just pulled the plug right then and there. And they said they'd start again next autumn, which makes total sense given the, given the state of the world right now. So there will be no curling in the South of England for sure this year. And what about North of England at the flower bowl in Preston? So the flower bowls had ice in since the first lockdown ended. So I went up there. I can't regard as a while ago. I think it was, um, july or august uh when the rink first reopened and so the ice has been in all the way through they had to lock down again but apparently they're going to reopen um uh when lockdown ends on wednesday uh so actually tomorrow from when we're recording this the lockdown is going to end here um and i think they're, they're going to try to do something this season and there have been chats about trying to run some of the english competitions up there um, later in the season. So there might be some curling up there, but again, I think it's going to be touch and go. And then um, all of our championships are canceled through January. And we're basically tracking the WCF that we'll talk about in a bit about whether or not to run more. Um, Just before we recorded tonight, Scotland announced that the men's women's and mixed doubles championships for their, their national championships are all canceled for this season. Juniors too. Juniors too. The World Juniors was canceled. The the Junior Bs was canceled months ago. Um, basically, any major competition now is pretty much canceled in through February, and uh, it's looking pretty bleak for the season, I'd say. So, how are things in Richmond? Uh, still no curling. You know, we're we're kind of at the uh, at the mercy of whatever the the ice rink is going to do. Things aren't terrible in Virginia, at least not in my part of of Virginia, Northern Virginia, which is basically the Washington the suburbs of Washington, DC. Um, you know, it's always been a little bit worse there just just because of the population density, but things haven't been terrible. Uh here in Richmond, we haven't had to go back to back to any kind of anything resembling a lockdown. I'm still working from home. Uh, and so is my wife, but, um, you know, things, things could be, things could be a lot worse. Restaurants can, restaurants can still serve. Um, even indoors, I believe restaurants can still serve. Although I have not, I haven't been, I haven't eaten indoors at a restaurant since, uh, since February. So there's that, but I think that you are still allowed to do that here. They did, they did, I think they made bars stop serving at 10 PM. Um, but yeah, um, so far 
things aren't aren't terrible here, but no curling uh, for the foreseeable future. In fact, here in the U.S., really the the main thing that's happened recently is USA Curling held its annual general meeting. Um, some of the important things to come out of that was a change in membership structure. And just a heads up, we will have a full episode about that at some point here in the near future. In addition to the change in membership structure, there was uh, an amendment was introduced to eliminate dues requirements for clubs that aren't opening this year. And I think they're going to vote on that later this month. And they announced that athlete representation on the board of directors for USA Curling is going to move to a full 33%. Right now they had 20% of the vote and they're going to have to move up to 33%. Before you get up in arms about athletes having more of a say and taking votes away from the clubs, uh, if you have an issue with that, you can literally write your congressperson because you can thank Representative Ted Lieu of California and H.R. 7881 amending the Ted Stevens Act for that change. It's requiring all national governing bodies to move athlete representation of their boards up to 33%. The biggest change is going to be that membership change. And now, before here with USA Curling, clubs were the ones that were members of USA Curling, and now individuals are going to be allowed to be members. Um, This is the way basically every other national governing body uh, does it. And I think that this is a a move to help uh, modernize our game, Jonathan. Yeah, I think... I mean, having been on the board and, and knowing, you know, in some ways curling's very conservative in like a small C sense and, and traditional in the sense that people really, curlers really, really, really don't like change. And you know, <laughs> I'm so old. I remember when people were, were against the free guard zone, the three rock free guard zone, right? Which if you looked back at 80s curling, if they hadn't gotten the free guard zone, curling would have been toast. So um, a lot of... Uh, a lot of changes is, is, I think, for the better. And I think this this is actually strikes me as a pretty modest change in the sense that um, it creates another path for people joining the organization. I don't think it, it doesn't exclude clubs from continuing to be members, right? It just means that people can sign up individually. Yeah, I believe that's the case. And they're going to they're going to beta test this before they they roll it out nationwide. I know there were a few people, particularly in my region here on the East Coast, that kind of got up in arms about it, but I think if it's done right, this really has a chance to empower the clubs as well as USA Curling with the information, especially marketing information that that we really need to help grow the sport. Uh, and it's going to be on a registration platform that that kind of brings the sport into the modern age. And I think giving um, like members in USA Curling a stake, right? That I think that uh, in some ways, like the like, basically the way the system works is a delegate system, right? Where where members elect the club board, the club board then sends members to the regional association, and the regional association send their their reps to the USCA, and that actually creates kind of like three layers between the members and the association. Uh, and so, if, it, if it's, it's a bit more direct in the sense that the members kind of feel directly empowered to go right to the association, the association feels that it has to be a bit more responsive to its members with this system. I think that actually 
uh, is a good thing for everyone involved. Yeah, like I said, we're going to devote an entire episode to the impacts of this change um, and how clubs might be able to benefit from it. Uh, that episode will probably be interesting to me and only me, but I think it'll be informative. Uh, USA Curling during the AGM also hosted a series of webinars that were open to the public. Uh, I watched the ones on insurance and diversity and inclusion. Uh, I thought both of them were were really helpful, uh, especially the one on diversity. It, it kind of helped helped plot the course for for what this initiative is going to look like in the U.S. in the post COVID world. Uh, and I encourage anyone to uh, to go check those out because they are available on USA Curling's YouTube channel. Uh, Jonathan up in Canada. Uh, things are starting to get serious again in terms of COVID-19. That's been, it's been that way here in the U S for, for pretty much all of all of the pandemic, uh, cases are on the rise in places that previously had been doing really well in keeping the disease at bay. Uh, curling, curling geek has been, uh, tracking how this has impacted clubs across North America and we've seen clubs that previously had said that they were going to delay until January announce that they're not opening. We've seen clubs that had planned to open announce that they're going to wait until January. And we're seeing clubs that had been open uh, now taking a hiatus. Uh, however, you still do have plenty of clubs that are either open or planning to open. Um, what was really interesting was I heard on two girls in a game with Lori and Mary, they were talking about that Nunavut, which previously had been the last place on the planet without a COVID-19 case now has an outbreak. Uh, Lori, of course, represented Nunavut at last year's Scotty's uh, Tournament of Hearts. So a lot of places, again, having to, to hit the pause button or just give up on the idea of curling uh, this season and wait till next season. And, you know, Jonathan, it, 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 it's not just curling, but there are a lot of sports that are on pause that are taking this season off and they're taking this time to look at what they want their community and their sport to look like when we resume some form of, some form of normalcy on the other side of COVID-19. Um, how do you think club curling will look after all of this and what changes, you know, are, are there any changes your club um, is going to make after this is all done or had, are there any changes that you think clubs should look at making um, once we get back to some form of normalcy? I mean, I mean, we're a specific context, right? Where we really only have maybe 200 active, like what I would call club curlers in England. We like the, and so, um, and we have two rinks and the rinks are primarily what I'd call rental groups. So people who come, they, they try curling once or twice a year. If, if like, and if they only come once, they just do like a try curling session. That might be it. So, um, there's kind of two moving parts to this. One is, um, just having spoken to the rink owners in the past, it's, it really is tied to the economy, that business model, right? So if there's a very deep recession, people have less disposable income, there's less turnout to the ranks. So, um, those, those rings are going to struggle to kind of get their, their business back going, I think after, after the recession ends. And then, you know, I, I don't know how many people, 
um, you know, I, I think a certain segment of our curling population in England is like 60, 70%, I'd say, are probably just lifers and they'll, they'll be back as soon as the ice is back in, uh, you know, myself included, obviously. But you, you always wonder what happens to people if it's, it's like a kind of a hobby they do once a week. It's fun. But if they haven't curled for two years and during the pandemic, they found other activities that, that work that are kind of more COVID secure, if you will, and that becomes a bigger part of their life, you may, you may lose that membership. And I, I kind of suspect that's that problem is going to be similar for a lot of clubs back in North America too, right? That if you know people people move on, I don't. My my wife's kind of picked up all these hobbies that are COVID friendly, so she's gotten she's gotten into wild swimming, which is like outdoor swimming, and because um, she can do that, it's outdoors. She made a whole bunch of new friends, and I'm sure that that hobby is going to continue post COVID. So. Um, curling's always competing for people's attention with other hobbies and activities at the club level. So I'm, I'm certain that there'll, there'll be a dip in membership and kind of having to rebuild the club's membership base is going to be the biggest challenge next season. Yeah. And I think that the way clubs across North America need to address that is they need to take a hard look at the way they've done things and say, you know, just because we've done it this way for 20, 30 years, will doing it this way help us be successful for the next 20 to 30? Because I think the answer is likely no. Um, I think more clubs need to look at how things are, are being done at places like Shamrock Curling Club in Edmonton and Curling Tallinn in Estonia, who we talked to in our previous two episodes, and say, how can we get creative with our ice time to expose the game to new curlers. So don't use the excuse of, oh, the men's league will get mad if they don't have this exact day and time. If you have a time that would work better for an after-school program or for a young professional's night, I think you really need to take a hard look at making those changes and asking for flexibility from your members now. And that's going to be hard to take because those people who stayed with you through COVID are going to have some pretty strong opinions about having some concessions for them. But if we're going to keep the sport sport healthy and keep the sport growing, you know, we're, we're, we're going to have to get creative and that, that may, um, that may require some flexibility from the, from the folks that are, that are staying with this sport through COVID. Yeah. And it's going to vary based on the business model. Right. So I think the, the place where I think, like the England rinks are in a stronger situation is their businesses. And so their big problem will be just marketing and, and bringing people back to the rink um, and getting kind of the customer base back in and building up their base. And that's, that's kind of a business problem. And they're, they're both run by, by successful businessmen. So I think it's a different challenge than um, member owned ranks like you have in, in Canada, especially, and also the U S where, you know, like you said, the members want something done one way. And, and you know, the members, in a member-owned rink, their first priority is to run the rink for the members to have fun curling. And that's that's a perfectly noble goal in and of itself. But um, I think as we're finding out in all kinds of industries, if if the money stops flowing in, regardless of if you're for-profit or non-profit, um, it gets very scary very fast, right? And so the question is really, I think the real challenge is going to be in member-owned rinks about what they're going to be able to do to recover Mm -hmm. um, cash flow, for lack of a better term, and just uh, keep those businesses viable as businesses. Yeah. 
Yeah, utilize your space, utilize your time as, as much as you can. You know, you can run a beginner league that starts with 20 to 30 minutes of, of off-ice etiquette talk or strategy talk while your ice makers are preparing the sheets. Or you can even have rotations and have one group do etiquette, one, do group, one group talk strategy, and one group even out helping prep the ice. Because, you know, you, you want to you want to groom your future ice makers at your club. You know, that that's one of the main things at arena clubs, like what really gets some buy-in is when we start getting the newcomers involved in helping us prep the ice, then that's when we start getting some serious buy-in from our beginners. So getting, getting them as part of that. I mean, I, I bet half of your, half of your people that are your, um, your bucket listers who just want to try it, I bet if you get them learning to make ice, I I bet a few more of them stick around rather than that the rather than just coming out to to throw rocks once and and be done. Yeah, that was that was the single best tip I ever got at a business of curling seminar the USA curling put mm. on is when when we were starting the club um I I can't remember who the person was, but they basically said, "Look, it's been." They pointed at me and the other kind of founder. So the problem is, you want to do it all because you got it going, and they they called it founder syndrome. Hmm. And I said, first, you're going to burn yourself out, but second, the way you keep members involved is to get them involved, and you just you just figure out with new members and say, "Can you do this?" And, and whatever it is that needs doing, or if or if there's stuff that doesn't need doing, and think of other things that could be done. A, you'd be amazed at the talent that you have in a curling club. Like, like my favorite moment was there was a couple right when we were starting and they just saw it and came and tried it. And I said, well, we need to build scoreboards. And they're like, well, we're, they basically do woodworking on the side. And they, they went online, found a few videos and they just built the scoreboards. And that, that's what, because they built, because they put the time in to build the scoreboards, they became members, I think. Mm -hmm. I think they were kind of 50, 50, whether or not they're the curling, but they felt like, they contributed something and they wanted to be because of that kind of maintain membership in the club. Like for a lot of people, the club part of curling really is feeling part of a community. Right. And that's um, like, we were talking about that with the last episode with the Shamrock curling club, right. That a lot of it's about kind of creating the sense of community about having your, your beer mug on the wall. Right. And feeling like you're, this is a place it's not just to go curl be the best curler, but it's a place where you can kind of hang out with your friends and and kind of enjoy enjoy a bit of socializing. Yeah, utilize that ice prep time. Have your beginners play four to six ins, and then brune stack afterward as you're trying to rebuild your member base. Once this is all said and done, and hey, if you're, I, I thought of this today. If you're a club, because I was search, I was looking through YouTube and watching watching old games. But if you're a club that utilizes Twelfth In Sports Network, and go to tesn.us to to see some examples of clubs that that have done this, save the videos of the good shots your beginners make and highlight those. You know, post them on Facebook as the shot of the week because they're going to get shared, and then the word of mouth about your club is going to spread. You know, celebrate those baby steps that your that your beginners are taking and celebrate their accomplishments. Yeah, and I think actually, actually, if you could share it on social media too, I think that's kind of a great promotion. Uh, do you remember the ad that Curling Canada put out about a decade ago with Johnny the Hammer Chow? And I can't, they had like a whole oh, yeah. side of them. Do you remember that ad campaign, right? And it's like because no, I'm a, the premise one, is one. I'm American, and two, I just started curling like ten years ago. So no, I do not remember this. But you've told you me you've, these ads you've, you've told yeah. me you've told me about it like twenty times. 
Yeah, so the, <laughs> we should go look it up on YouTube and share it, right? But um, the, the premise is basically it's League Night Curling, Beginner Curler, and like they make a big shot, and it's this person. The classic one's Donnie the Hammer Chow, and it's like he makes a double takeout on purpose to win the game, right? <laughs> and it's, you know, bad technique, you know, so-so uh, sweeping, slightly fluky shot. But, um, like, the whole thing is it kind of gets the rush of what club curling is. It's not selling you know, the bend and botcher style of the world, which is, to be honest, to the beginner curlers, that's intimidating. That's like, you know, it's intimidating to me. So <laughs> if you're someone who hasn't, he's basically been throwing a stone for like, you know, 20 minutes, that's going to be very intimidating. So, so showing that actually, and to be honest, part of the fun of curling is that actually any shot is available to anyone, right? Like we've all played a game, a league game where, you know, the not so great curler makes the crazy run back double, whether or not it's on purpose is, you know, um, <laughs> open for debate, but like that, that's part of the fun of the game is actually anyone can make that shot. Right. And so kind of playing up that people, when they make those shots and they have those great moments celebrating it, they get the rush of that and they feel like they belong, especially if the club's celebrating those highlight reels. I think that's a great idea, Ryan. So things that uh, are not nearly as fun. We are we are recording this on December first, and I tried to get you to postpone doing this as much as possible because I think the floodgates are about to open on cancellations of curling events, and I think that that Scotland canceling their championships is the first of many that are about to happen. Uh, is there, hang on one second, Jonathan, let me go check Twitter and make sure that we haven't missed any, any cancellations. <laughs> no updates. I'll, well, while you're uh, checking Twitter, I will, I'll fill our guests in. So no, I think we're good. So, Cause I, we're good. All right. So, so one of the things I've been tipped off to, cause I sit on the English curling association council is the WCF is trying to do a rolling 90 day decision thing. And if you actually tracked the decisions on events, it's been around 90 days out, not exactly, but around there, they're clearly canceling events, looking at the state of the world 90 days out, right? And so basically, everything now has been canceled up until the women's at the end of March, which would be basically the end of December would be the decision date, I guess, or just, uh, you know, basically Christmas Day, but I, I doubt WCF is going to decide on Christmas Day, right? So, um, so I guess the question is how long they're going to go. And we're kind of facing two forces here, right? The virus is getting worse globally, um, but there's news that vaccines are imminent. I guess the real question is, can the vaccines get distributed quickly enough to make a spring series of events um, possible? So what say you, Ryan? If we were a... NFL podcast or an NBA podcast, I would say, yes, absolutely. These teams are going to get the vaccine um, early on so that we can continue to have um, live televised sport. We're a curling podcast, so no. Um, I think that the, when, once the vaccine is available, people like you and me are not going to be able to get it for probably six months. Like I, I expect once the vaccine is first available, then six months later, that's probably when it'll be my turn to get it, which is fair. Um, that's absolutely what should happen. Um, but Team Cooey is not going to be first in line to get the vaccine, nor should they. 
Yeah, and I, I actually think for pro sports, they're going to have a hard time. I mean, I actually think that if it got out that pro athletes were getting the vaccine ahead of granny somebody, um, <laughs> right? I think, you know, if LeBron James gets it before granny, your grandmother gets it, I think people would be pretty pissed off too. So I think you're right that even if the vaccine starts, say, early January, some of the reports I'm hearing, me, I think some of the December stuff's a bit optimistic, but, um, you know, let's say it's early January. It's by, by what I've read in the media, it's going to be nine months, maybe even a year before it's distributed. The, the other big wrinkle here, right, which is different from pro sports, is that for the worlds, at least, we're talking about crossing international mm-hmm. borders. A lot of international borders are still closed. Yep. Um, the Raptors are not allowed to play in Canada if they want to have an NBA season. So they're looking for a U.S. site. No Toronto-based sports team has played in Toronto during the pandemic. I guess the Leafs did, right? Because they were... Well, the whole, cause the, whole league, yeah, the, the whole league yeah. was in um, Canada. In fact, it, now it sounds like all the Canadian teams are just going to play each other for the, for yeah, the so NHL season. So that none of them yeah, have to so, cross the border. So basically, the NHL... And MLB, NBA are not planning to cross the border anytime soon. I, I have a very hard time seeing how the WCF's going to coordinate 14 to 20 border crossings for yeah. its major events. Yeah, and for uh, I, for a long time, I fully expected them to just cancel Worlds um, and really just all the events just hit the reset button and say in, in, until next season. I'm now beginning to wonder if they'll try to do it in as early as May, more likely August, September, because it, if they do that and the 2022 Olympics don't get postponed, you're looking at a six month sprint from worlds, which is basically the first Olympic qualifier, uh, to the Olympics themselves in February and between the August, September worlds in the Olympics, you're going to have to have two Olympic qualifying, qualifying events because the, the pre OQE and then the OQE, as well as a bunch of trials for each company uh, for each country. If the Olympics don't get postponed, they're going to have to shoehorn a worlds in sometime realistically in the next nine to 10 months. If you don't, then you're having to look at let at letting all of the countries run their trials and then running a series of Olympic playdowns, uh, including something that you would call the 2021 Worlds in December and January. It, it it feels like there's a lot of time between now and the 2022 Olympics because right now it, it's still 2020. So like in our heads, the 2022 Olympics seem really far away. But in reality, when you're having to put together the logistics of an intercontinental event in the middle of a pandemic, while a lot of countries are seeing their numbers rise, it's not a lot of time. I don't envy the WCF right now, and I imagine every contingency that I just listed and a dozen more have been discussed by them. Yeah, I I don't know what they're going to do. I think I'm kind of with you that Pro, like my instinct would be they'll try to do something in September, whether they call it a world championship or not. I don't know. Um, but, but by, by my, by my understanding, by most accounts, probably most of the, most of the countries where there's curling or at least curling that's from, from nations that have a serious shot at Olympic qualifications. So let's just say the top 20 
countries in the world, which is basically, you know, Asia, Europe, North America, right? Um, most of those countries will be on track to have pretty full levels of vaccination by by the autumn. So by that point, I think it's likely that, um, assuming that everything works out then, it's likely that you could run some kind of international event, say September. Um, is it the world's? Do you just call it the world's then and, and run it then? I don't know. Um, do they do something else or do they just go back to the board and figure out a different system for running an Olympic qualifying? Like may, maybe they, they go back and revise the World Cup idea that they had and basically say what we'll do is we'll run regional World Cup competitions for nations and let them use that to accumulate Olympic qualifying points. So you have like a European, uh, an Asian and a North American or whatever the zones are and you qualify that way. So, so maybe it's a chance to kind of basically go back to the drawing board and come up with a different system. I, I think that the two big issues you're going to get from national governing bodies at the WCF is one, having been in the room in the USA, USA curling, the one thing that petrifies national program coaches is single elimination tournaments. Like I, I would love mm-hmm. it. I would love all 64 <laughs> teams, March madness, single elimination. Oh, <laughs> it would be great. Um, but, you know, uh, I don't think Curling Canada, having invested several million dollars over the quad, is going to be happy with that format, right? There's a lot of money on the line here for for programs. So they're going to want to come up with a system that allows countries multiple points of opportunity and kind of eliminates flukiness. So I can't see them just saying the, it's the worlds and that's it uh, for Olympic. Like it's, it's worlds, 2021 worlds and um, or 2022 worlds, and then you, you decide your Olympic qualification off that. So they're going to probably have to come up with a new, a new plan altogether. Well, and because Euros and PACCs weren't able to run this year and you weren't able to have a worlds last year, like there, there has to be some sort of of side door to where a country like a Finland or a Czech Republic has the opportunity to win their way into the Olympics. Yeah, I mean, the, the WCF's principles are set up so that in theory, at least it's, it's very difficult for it to happen, but in theory, the lowest ranked team in the world should have a path every year to win the world championship. So you know, if you're in the Eurozone, like in theory, you, you could start in the C pool, win the C pool, win the B pool, win the, get to the world qualification event, win the world qualification event, get to Worlds, get the playoffs, right? There's a, there's a path, mm-hmm. right? It's super unlikely that's going to happen. But the principle there is that every country gets a shot, right? And I think that the, the membership clearly likes that. Um, and there's good reasons for that, too, because a lot of these emerging uh, members associations, if they want funding, they have to go to their national governing bodies, their national kind of funding bodies and say, hey, we need money because we're going to get to the Olympics. Like to be like, if you're not, if you don't have a path to the Olympics, you're just not getting any money to, to run a national curling program. So the path has to be there for, you know, a lot of these countries if they want to kind of get any, any kind of serious funding. So if even if it's like, even if we all we all know who like eight of the ten teams are going to be in each event at the Olympics, right? We could probably write down a list mm-hmm. right now, and it'd be pretty close, right? Um, there's countries that are kind of on the bubble in that kind of next range that they're the ones who are kind of you know worried about funding. They're worried that if if the path's closed off, it could end up just killing like elite curling in that country. Whereas at least if they get close to a qualification system, they can go back and get funding for the next quad. Yeah. Um, so 
worlds as they are scheduled, honestly, zero percent chance that's happening. As as they are scheduled, no chance. And I imagine that that announcement will come uh, as soon as we hit stop on recording this podcast. Honestly, uh, I think we're going to get an announcement this week about U.S. nationals. In fact, I even saw Colin Huffman. Uh, say as, that that he also anticipated as much uh, on Twitter today. Um, one place where I think that they have at least a shot of playing is Canada with the Scotties and the Briar. Um, and it looks like they might try to run those um, in Calgary as a curling bubble with with no fans. It's definitely different because you all the players are coming from one single country. There's no international travel. But the other thing is the TV rights money and the that that curling Canada probably needs the TV rights money needs to run these events. Um and it the the TV rights money for the the Scotties and the Briar probably means more to curling Canada than the world's does to the WCF's coffers. So do you think that they can pull off this curling bubble and do you think we will see a Scotties and a Briar? Uh I okay, so I think um and this may <laughs> this may run counter to one of the other larger more famous podcasts out there, but I think the Scotties and the Briar is is unlikely that the mm. provincial associations would scream bloody murder if it was just all selection based, right? That that very much the provincial associations see the Scotties and the Briar as, as interprovincial and they want to keep that. And I think they would be very opposed to anything that set a precedent um, for moving away from that, as much as some people uh, out there in the curling media scape uh, might like that. I do think it's pretty easy for Curling Canada to run the Canada Cup, right? Mm-hmm. They, like, they can just go off CTRS standings, invite the top eight or nine if they want to expand the field of each gender. If they got wanted to get a little creative, maybe what they could do on top of that is encourage those teams to kind of form a partnership for mixed doubles one weekend and maybe do a skins game or some kind of, you know, Continental Cup type thing or something. Like they, they could definitely create a curling bubble for a couple of weeks with a bit of quarantine on either side um, that would make it possible, right? With rigorous testing and kind of protocols, you you can you can get access to a university, the University of Calgary, I guess, or one of the colleges there for, for kind of dorm space and basically create kind of a, a you know, a poor man's version, if you will, of the NBA bubble, right? Where it's just not, it's probably not as high tech, but you could, you know, with, with regular testing, that's possible. Like actually our university does that with uh, like our students are required to do regular saliva testing on campus. And we, we can track that pretty closely. So the technology is there now to do that. Um, Again, I think they'll probably have to get a bit creative. I suspect, maybe they'll call it the Scotties and the Briar, but I'm a little skeptical. And I just think that, at the provincial level, if it's just selecting off CTRS standings that are 10 months old, I think there's going to be a lot of pushback. I think running provincial championships is basically impossible because they normally run in January. And if you look at the the rate the COVID numbers are going in Canada, that's just not going in the right direction. I don't think you can turn it around out of lockdown in, in a month. So um, maybe a bubble, maybe not. Um, I think that's kind of up in the air, but and probably... Yeah, probably a Canada Cup type thing or some kind of made for TV thing. And that, you know, that could work pretty well in terms of entertainment and give perhaps the top teams 
some media exposure, some advertising exposure, some comp- competitive experience, and a chance to maybe earn some points. But I suspect the Skydies and Briar, uh, at least as kind of interprovincial, won't be happening this year. Hey, everybody. Future Ryan here. Uh, we finished recording this episode at around 5.30 p.m. on Tuesday, December 1st. And wouldn't you know it, at 6.15 p.m., Curling Canada uh, announced the curling bubble. So they are going to run the Scotties, the Briar, and the Mixed Doubles Championships. The Mixed Doubles Championships needs a fun name like Scotties and Briar. If you have any ideas, hit us up on social media, but it needs a fun name. But they're going to run those three Canadian championships. Surprisingly, they're also going to run Men's Worlds. And according to the curling news, they're also going to run two Grand Slam events within the curling bubble, which is going to take place uh, in Calgary. And all of those events are going to run back to back to back to back, basically, uh, starting either in February or March and concluding in mid-April, according to the Curling News. Curling News also said they have the option to cancel without penalty as late as mid-January. Again, that is uh, according to reporting by the Curling News. Surprising to me was that they chose to include men's worlds and not women's worlds. I guess they're still planning on running Women's Worlds in Switzerland, which right now, unless you're uh, one of the Sinjin countries, uh, you can't really get into Switzerland without quarantining for 10 days and getting like a special access pass. So um, surprising that they did announce Men's Worlds was going into the bubble, but not Women's Worlds. Also, I really still don't think Men's and Women's Worlds are, are going to happen. I just think that I just don't think you can run an intercontinental tournament like that that quick um, but it would not surprise me at all if they if they're able to pull off briar scotties uh the the mixed doubles championship and the two grand slam events so we'll see um yeah we'll we'll see we'll see what happens with worlds though i mean with those almost all of those are now professional teams if you're representing your country there's only a few that are at worlds that aren't truly professional teams that are capable of of, uh, of quarantining for, for two weeks on, on either side of a tournament that like that. So we'll see. Um, very, very interested to see that they went ahead and announced that they're going to try to do men's worlds like this, but yeah. Um, all right. Enjoy the rest of the show. All right, Jonathan, I've been waiting 40 minutes to talk about this. And when it happened, I tweeted from the rocks across the pond account that I hoped that this story would get the kind of play in the curling media that it has deserved. And that's actually happened. So that, that that's awesome. And I have loved seeing people talk about this. One place where the national championships for curling were able to take place was Korea, where Kim Eun-jung reclaimed the women's championship. Uh, Jung Young-suk won his first men's title, and the mixed doubles title was won by the combo of Jang Hai-ji and Song Yu-jin. The win for Team Kim Eun-jung, the 2018 Olympic silver medalist, is especially triumphant and is worth celebrating in a year where we've had so much bad news. Team Kim Eun-jung went through the round-robin undefeated, 
then prior to the start of the playoffs, the ice makers at the Korean championships uh, papered the stones without telling the teams. Uh, and if you watched hmm. any of the streaming that was provided by Curling One Spoon or the Korean Curling Federation on Instagram, uh, you might have noticed that in the round robin, they were about mid-eight for draws to the button. And then all of a sudden in the play- playoffs, uh, they were edge 12. Um, Jonathan, the reason we know the teams weren't told about the stones getting papered is that the Korean Curling Federation had to issue a press release where they admitted to doing it because uh, they said there just wasn't enough time to notify the teams in advance. That's I don't I just want to pause and note like how shocking that is. Every like every event, like umpired event that I've played in or coached in, the ice techs are super transparent about stuff like that. They don't want um, they don't want the athletes kind of screaming and yelling if the ice conditions are going to change that much. So that's actually quite shocking. It's like like the the normal standard thing like, and ice techs don't want that either. Like we we had Jamie Danbrook on as a guest and he was he was transparent about everything. Any question you had, but also he'd just say if there'd been any tweaks at all made, he just wanted everyone to know just so it was fair. And the umpire is the same way too. So that's actually that's actually kind of shocking that that happened. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll put a pin in that one because we're we're gonna do an entire Korean curling episode. Uh, so we'll 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 circle back on that one when when we do our Korean curling episode. Uh, so in the playoffs, Team Kim Un Jung uh, beat uh, Team. Kim Minji in the page one, two game. Kim Minji is the 21 year old who has won a bronze at worlds, uh, two world junior medals and a gold at the Asia Pacific championships. Uh, team Kim Eun-jung then knocked off defending champion Jim eun to win their first national title since 2017. Um, this really is a story of perseverance, perseverance, And like I said, we're working on a show about the curling in Korea and how what has happened to Team Kim has impacted the sport at a grassroots level there. Uh, This team was celebrated after winning silver in February of 2018. And on top of that euphoria, Kim Eun-jung got married that July and decided to start a family shortly after. And that's kind of when everything changed for this team. Then in October of 2018, or no, November of 2018, they alleged abuse and the misappropriation of funds by a gentleman named Kim Kyung-do. Uh, he is the so-called godfather of curling in Korea. Um, they also alleged abuse and misappropriation um, by his daughter, who served as their coach, and her husband, who was also a Korean Olympic coach. A few months later, in February of 2019, the Korean Ministry of Sport announced uh, that its investigation backed Team Kim's claims and asked Kim Kyung-do's family to return over uh, $180,000 U.S. dollars in misappropriated funds. It was a victory for Team Kim, but it was not the end of this story. The investigation by the Korean Ministry of Sport revealed that a vice chairman of Team Kim's local sports association had been heavily involved in installing Kim Kyung-do's family members in positions that they were unqualified for uh, and had basically condoned the abuse and the embezzlement. However, this person was not disciplined until October 2019, and then after only two months, 
That person was put back in charge of managing Team Kim by their local sports association. All this according to to reporting by the Korean TV network SBS. This was all part of a wildly toxic culture that can be found throughout the Korean Olympic Committee. Um, And we will discuss that culture further um, in our Korean curling episode. And this could have continued throughout the rest of Team Kim's career. However, Korean sport faced a reckoning when in June of this year, a 22-year-old triathlete named Choi Sook-hyun killed herself after previously reporting abuse from her coaching staff. Choi's death brought to light what one Korean sports studies professor told the Washington Post was a, quote, harsh training regimen that justifies violence as long as it produces medal winners, end quote, in the country of South Korea. Less than a month later, Team Kim again came forward, revealing that they were still being managed by that previously disciplined local official and that they suffered from the same anxiety and despair that Choi likely felt. Finally, starting in October, you had the for- that former vice chairman finally get permanently expelled from the KCF. And then days after Team Kim's victory at the Korean curling championships, Kim Kyung-do and his family were finally permanently expelled from the KCF. Jonathan, I seriously doubt we're going to see a world's played this year. Um, and while in the grand scheme of everything going on in the world, um, that really doesn't matter. But it is a shame that not having a world's might keep this story and Team Kim's perseverance from from reaching the broader audience it deserves. Although, shout out to George Carey's and Curling News for um, kind of putting out a good deal of this story today uh, on, on their page on SI.com. Yeah, I think, well, I think it's starting to get a bit more play, right? I think part of the, we, we tried to cover this early on and um, I mean, we were translate, you were like sending me stories from running, you know, Korean news stories through Google Translate, right? And it was, uh, it was, it didn't translate that well. So it was a bit difficult to kind of piece together exactly what was happening. And I think that's kind of part of the issue here. Um, it, it is a really kind of, yeah, tragic story, I'd say. Um you know, and, and kind of a, a reminder of how sports can sometimes really, really go off the rail. So, yeah, it'll be good to discuss this a bit more in depth. Yeah. Uh, Jonathan, I mean, situations like what happened to them are, are just a scourge on, on sport and the Olympic movement. Um, you know, it, it it's part of systemic failings at the top of a lot of national governing bodies that hopefully we are starting to eliminate from sports. Um, like I said, we'll dive into what happened in Korea and how they can move forward. Um, and hopefully they've been given a second chance to capitalize on international curling success and turn it into growth at the grassroots level. Um, I don't think we're at the end of this story. I, I think there is a redemption arc for this team that could culminate with a second chance at gold in Beijing. You know, I, I thought coming out of Pyeongchang that the the next redemption story that we might see in curling would be Team Homan returning to the Olympics and claiming gold. But but now this is the one that I'm rooting for. I want to see this team at the top of the podium in 2022. 
Good luck to Team Kim and good riddance to the terrible people who did terrible things to a group of incredible women. It's good that those people will never be able to tarnish our sport again. And it's even better that Team Kim is back in winning big tournaments. Yeah, it'll be, yeah, it's, it's great to hear. So ho- hopefully we'll be able to see them um, playing in some kind of competition, the international competition soon. So, and I look forward to our next episode. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... Before we get out of here, uh, congratulations to some more champions, uh, junior national champions. Uh, in Russia, Vlada uh, Romyantseva uh, is the women's champion again. She already has a WJCC gold and bronze to her name. Uh, the men's side was won by German Dronen. Uh, in Japan, Go Aoki is again your men's junior champion for the fourth consecutive year. Um, he's also a former men's national champion, um, and he participated in the 2018 World Championships. Uh, on the women's side, Momoha Tabata won her first title. Uh, she and her third, uh, Mina Kobayashi, finished second at this year's Youth Olympic Games. Jonathan, I, I, I wrote the words this year's Youth Olympic Games and thought that can't be right. And I I looked it up and yeah, it was in February of this year. It feels like it was 30 years ago, but yeah, the Youth Olympic Games were this year. Um, they Those two also played in last year's World Mix. Um, coming up, the Russians are going to be running their men's championship through December 10th and the women's championship will be December 10th through 18th. Those can be seen on the Russian Curling TV YouTube channel. So we can watch some Russian curling then. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's usually pretty solid curling too. Will you tweet it out? Uh, yeah, I've been, do, I've been doing that, man. I did. Uh, there's a couple of, uh, of really good shots from the, the women's junior championship that we posted to our, uh, our Twitter. And so you'll post the schedule too for all our fans to, to find the best in uh, the Russian curling championships. Um, sure. Cause that, that might be the only live curling we get in December, the way things are going right now. Uh, it probably is. Yeah. We also, uh, before we get out of here, uh, we want to join the Australian Curling Federation in mourning the passing of their own Ian Palangio, uh, originally from Orangeville, Ontario, just outside of Toronto. Ian suited up for Australia at 24 different events and was part of two PACC gold medal winning teams in 2005 and 2006, uh, where he threw fourth stones for Hugh Milliken. Uh, the Australian Curling Federation asked that if you have any memories or photos of Ian to please post them to their Facebook page. Um, thanks everybody for listening in. We've got um, a lot of exciting stuff uh, coming your way. You know, we always end the show by saying how much we appreciate you listening and tell you that the, the biggest compliment we can receive is if you tell a friend about us. And apparently a lot of you have uh, done that because uh, we've seen tremendous growth in our little listening community since the start of COVID-19. And we can't thank you all enough for doing that. Uh, if you're a fan of the show and you haven't already, please let your curling friends and family know that they can find us on Apple, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and whatever third-party app is your favorite. Uh, if you're getting grandma or grandpa a new phone for Christmas, what better way to celebrate than by preloading our show on their app and turning on notifications? 
Um, thank you all again for your support. Uh, if you have any questions or comments, you can email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Um, Jonathan, anything before, uh, before I tell everybody goodbye? Uh, keep wearing your mask. Don't leave the house. Uh, it'll end soon. Uh, just th- throw on uh, Dolly Parton's Light of a Clear Blue Morning and you can get through the day, everybody. All right. Uh, thanks again. And uh, we will talk to you again real soon.